Um, we've been in a series on marriage. The sermon series is titled The Mystery of Marriage because marriage reflects the gospel. Marriage teaches us the gospel. And so we've been out of that series for a couple of weeks, so we're going to jump back into it tonight. And I'm excited because tonight we're going to talk about fighting. I'm excited. Why am I excited about fighting? I don't know. So let me just begin by um, sharing a, a, a proverb. The proverb says, where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops comes by the strength of the ox. There you have it. <laughs> How would you feel if you got that in your fortune cookie this week? What does that even mean? <laughs> where there are no oxen, the manger is clean, but abundant crops comes by the strength. Well, I'll tell you what it means. It means that when there is no ox, your manger is clean. But when you have an ox, well, you're going to have some stuff to clean. Another way of saying it is this. It is not good for a man to be alone. I know what you're thinking. What does this proverb have to do with marriage? Well, it's simple. When a man is alone... The manger is clean. Everything's just fine. I like it. I put my socks here because I like my socks here. But then if you want abundant crops, if you want the strength of your helpmate, well, you're going to have some stinky poo. Now, now, I'm not suggesting and I'm not comparing. <laughs> I'm not comparing women to stinky oxen. Sorry, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just telling you what the Bible says the strength of our helper. So a couple of weeks ago, we talked about this. When God saw that it was not good for a man to be alone, he created someone, two things. And those things were a helpmate that is suitable. And we unpacked these terms the whole time. The helpmate is a, is a Hebrew word that doesn't mean someone to help out around the house. A helpmate literally means a strong helper, uh, in fact, it is the same Hebrew word used of giant kings to help smaller kings. You know, he needs, I need your help. Help me win this battle. It's also used of God who helps Israel in battle or God who helps us in our time of need. So a strong helper, it's a military term to help us fight our battles. And then secondly, the word suitable could be translated like opposite, which means that this helpmate, this strong helper, is not the same as you. That doesn't fit together. Instead, it's the same, but perfectly opposite, and that fits together. And so when you put this military term, you know, strong helper, and then you put this concept of a like oppositeness, you're bound to have some friction. You're bound to have some conflict. In fact, the definition of marriage is the two will become one. And I know not much about math, but I know that one plus one does not equal one. But in marriage, you have two becoming one, and you can bet your bottom dollar there's going to be some conflict. So tonight, we're going to talk about conflict. We're going to talk about fighting, how to fight right. Every couple fights. In fact, all the books that I read say if couples say they don't fight, they're either lying or they're very unhealthy. So if... Marriage is a holy institution designed by God to teach us the gospel, see also Ephesians 5. And if this becoming one flesh is going to create friction and conflict, don't you think the Bible would have something to say about how to conflict and how to fight? And incidentally, the Bible has a lot to say about conflict, and we're going to look at some of that tonight. But before we go any further, I've just been reminded of a thought that I had 
Um, there are a few single people in the room or, or unmarried people in the room. And what I want to say about where we're going tonight and the next few weeks is this. A lot of the material that I'll be sharing tonight, I received when I was 21 years old. Um, I, I went to a singles Bible study and the pastor was preaching on the Song of Solomon and I just ate it up and I bought those CDs and I gave girls those CDs hoping that they would like me. Um, <laughs> you need to hear this stuff when you're single. Because you're, you, you're going to have relationships whether you're married or not, and, and those relationships are going to have conflict too, your work relationships, your roommate relationships. But also, I don't know about you, but I'm the kind of guy who needs to get hit across the head a couple of times before it begins to sink in. And so you need to hear this stuff to prepare you for marriage before you get married. And then, because most people will say, man, I wish I would have heard that before I got married. It's good to hear it now. And you should probably hear it three or four or nine or ten times before you actually take a mate. So be encouraged. This isn't just about married people. This is about relationships, period. But we're talking in the context of marriage. So Tommy Nelson says, all couples fight. Good couples fight clean, but bad couples fight dirty. Good couples press for resolution, and bad couples press for a victory. Conflict in good couples, expose their character, but in bad couples, it exposes their immaturity. And so tonight, we're going to talk about fighting. But before we do, we need to warm up a little bit. Before we, before we hit the mat, we've got we've to get the blood flowing. So I want to start, actually, with a discussion. And the discussion question is this. It's a fun question. It's meant to be ice-breaking, okay? So you don't have to get too serious and start bawling on your table yet, Okay. Share a story about the silliest fight you had as a couple, or if you're not a couple, like Justin, share about a relationship you've had, maybe your mom, maybe your best friend, whatever. Or if, to jog your memory a little bit, here's another question, do you remember your first fight? If it's appropriate to share that story, then share that story. Let's take three minutes. So now that we've got the blood warmed up a little bit, I'm going to let you leave those stories for your table. Um, let's look at the Bible. The Bible has a few suggestions for how to handle conflict. We've been kind of looking at Ephesians 5, which is the manual for marriage, and it, the, Ephesians 5 opens with this verse, therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. And as you read the book of Ephesians chapter 5, as Paul is explaining the relationship between a man and woman, he often says these words about, he likens us to Christ, do it as unto Christ. For instance, he says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And so if you, if, you, if you read the whole chapter, several times he's telling us, do this as Christ did that. In fact, he actually says, be imitators of God. And so if you want to have a good relationship with your spouse, it's really easy. Just imitate God. That's all you got to do. Imitate the creator of the universe and everything will be fine. No wonder we have so many problems, right? <laughs> now, the, now, this may seem like an overwhelming platitude, so overwhelming that you may be tempted just to forget it and say, well, I could never do that. How could I possibly love my wife the way Christ loves my wife? <laughs> well, you can't because you're not God, um, but you can imitate God. So how do we imitate God? Now, there are a lot of passages in Scripture we could go to about how to fight, how to, how to argue, and how to resolve but instead of going to one of those instructional passages, I thought it would be more fun to actually watch someone fight in the Bible. You know, Jerry Springer style. Let's not talk about fighting, let's bring it. And then let's watch these people fight and see how it happens. So if we turn to Song of Solomon, if you want to go there, chapter 5, there are two chapters in this book that are all about fighting. 
Solomon has a new wife, and they're going to get into it. So let's just jump into the mat, and let's watch this couple fight. And let's see if we can learn anything about ourselves when we do. And as we go through this story, we're going to see three keys, three principles on how to imitate God when we are conflicting. I'm not going to tell you what those are right now, as I usually do. I'm going to see if you find them. They're, they're, they're secret keys. <laughs> All right, they're mysterious keys. Well, let's just get started. Chapter 5, we've got a lot to cover. We've got two whole chapters. It opens like this. I slept, but my heart was awake. A sound. My beloved is knocking. Open to me, my sister, my love, my dove, my perfect one. For my head is wet with the dew and my locks with the drops of the night. So here, here's the situation. Solomon's been working hard late at night. He says he's been working, sweat in his hair. It's been a hard day's night, and he's been working like a dog, you know? And he comes home, and what does he want to do? That was a Beatles reference for you, Alex. He knocks on the door, and he says, Open to me, my love, my sister, my sweet, my honey bunches of oats, my sugar plum, my dark. What, what do you think he wants? He wants something. He wants something. He wants some, right? You know what I'm saying? And um, he, well, let's see what happens. Okay, she, so let's see how she responds. She says, well, I've put off my garment. How could I put it back on? I've bathed my feet. How could I soil them? <clears throat> so now we've got ourselves a fight, right? We've got a conflict, probably a conflict that you all have had in this very room. One of my favorite pastors says, this is Hebrew for, uh, I have a headache. <laughs> <laughs> my feet are clean. How can I get up from my bed and walk all the way over to the door and dirty them? And I think if you were watching this on a movie, your response would be, <gasps> I know she didn't. And let me tell you why this would be your response. Historically, in, the, in some background, um, she is a peasant princess, which means Solomon, she's a migrant worker in the field, and Solomon found her. He, she caught his eye, and so he brought her home and let her you know, bathe in the castle and clean herself up and do her nails, and then he, he honored her and he showed her the most respect in the first four chapters of, of Song of Solomon. He courts her, he dates her, he proposes to her, and he marries her. So he's brought this peasant girl into his kingdom, and she has the audacity to say, I am not going to open the door because I don't want to get my feet dirty. So how do you think he's going to respond? Here's what you should be thinking. How would you respond? Kick the door down? I know you didn't. Let me tell you a thing or two. Maybe use some manipulation. Okay, fine. Well, I'll just go knock on sister wife, you know, number 97's door and see if she'll open the door. Because, you know, Solomon had lots of wives. Let's see how he responds. My beloved put his hand to the latch and my heart was thrilled within me, so I arose to open to my beloved, and my hand dripped with myrrh, my fingers with liquid myrrh on the handle of the bolt. So did you see what he did? He didn't force his way in. He didn't kick the door down. He didn't, he didn't pressure her in any way. He didn't manipulate her. Instead, he just covered the bolt, the thing that was separating he and her, he covered that bolt with liquid love. And she smelt it, and she rose to open it. So what's the principle? What's the key? Are you picking up the mystery key? The key is, oh wait, let me just say this. There's a lots of things he could have done, right? He could have kicked the door down. We mentioned that. He could have used manipulation. He could have quoted 1 Corinthians, you know? <laughs> could have gotten on his bike, flew down the highway in a fit of anger to the pub and drink himself silly and get in a fight with someone else. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Here's an interesting question. What's your MO? What's your modus operandi? How do you typically respond or react in a situation like this? You might want to think about that over the next two or three minutes. 
Because here's the key. The key is do not react. Or another way of saying it is show grace, show patience, show loving kindness. Solomon doesn't bust the door down. He gives her grace. He covers the bar that separates them with love, and then he slips away. Incidentally, the Song of Solomon as a book is often used as a parallel to our relationship with Jesus. In fact, this very story of him knocking on the door is we see it played out in a famous verse in the book of Revelation, which says, Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens that door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. This, this story is saying Jesus is not one who forces himself on us. He doesn't kick the door down and say, you better respect me, I'm God. He stands at the door and he knocks. And we're just like this peasant princess, actually. Even though we've been invited into the kingdom, even though he's cleaning us up even now and grooming us for the kingdom. In fact, he's made us heirs of his kingdom, the Bible says. We still reject him, we still ignore him, and we still make lame excuses like, I don't want to get my feet dirty. And aren't you glad that he doesn't kick the door down and say, you better respect me, I died on a cross for you. I am. He shows patience, he shows loving kindness. So here's the key. In as much as you can show patience and loving kindness to your wife, and as much or your husband, in as much as you could do that, then you are imitating God, a God who shows loving kindness, a God who shows patience. Tommy Nelson, he says, we sinned against Jesus, and the cost of that sin was a cross. That sin that barred us from him, he anointed with love. He put myrrh on the bolt, if you will. He put his blood all over that cross. Jesus is just like Solomon. He covers our separation with liquid love. So here's the question I want to discuss. How does Solomon imitate God? What can you learn from this story about how you respond to your spouse? What's your M.O.? And how could you respond differently if you were trying to imitate God? Let's talk about that for three minutes. Well, let's see how um, he responds. Here's, Here's one thing I think. I think we as humans have developed these defensive maneuvers because we've been hurt in the past. So because we've been hurt in the past, we know not to be patient and long suffering and gracious and kind because if we are, they're gonna walk all over us. And we've learned shame me once, shame me twice. So what's gonna happen if Solomon? Let's this peasant girl treat him, the king, like that. Is she going to take advantage of him? Is she going to begin to abuse her position? Let's see what happens. We would think, yes, you know, that's why you got to give her a thing or two, you know, beat the door down. But let's see what happens. Where has your beloved gone? There's these people in um, the Song of Solomon, these, these girls that are singing these songs around them, and they're asking her, where has your beloved gone? Um, oh, most beautiful among women, where has your beloved turned that we may seek him with you? And she says, listen to her response. My beloved has gone down to his garden to the beds of spices, to graze in the garden and to gather lilies. I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. He grazes among the lilies. So what's important that we see here is that the people are asking, where did he go? He knocked on the door. He wanted some intimacy. You wouldn't give it to him, wouldn't open the door. So he covered the bar with liquid love and then slipped off. And where is he? Don't you want to know? Is he on sister wife number 97's door? Is he at the bar? Where is he? She knows where he is. There's no doubt in her mind. She says, he's my beloved's at the garden, pulling lilies and spices and stuff. So so here's, (laughs) yeah, I don't know what that means. Um, So here's the second key. There is power in your marriage for stay, for staying, knowing that your spouse is not going to leave. Any marriage that has the power of stay has power. 
Any marriage that doesn't have that power, well, has no power. This is why you have to, you cannot be in a marriage that has the back door open, if you will. That's why Tom Nelson says in his book, um, there's, there, there, this is why you have to slam the door on divorce. You can't live in a marriage where there's a back door open. There's power in the security and the assurance of knowing that your mate will stay. Listen, if your mate's going to stay, you can deal with the issue without freaking out about whether or not they're going to leave. Because once they say, well, I'm leaving, then you've shifted from this issue to, oh, you're leaving? Let's deal with that. Why? How could you? What are you talking about? She says this, I am my beloved's and my beloved is mine. She is sure he will never leave me. Once again, I have to say this, this verse is a parallel, which teaches us about Jesus. In fact, we sing it in worship songs. I am my beloved and he is mine. We're talking about Jesus. Jesus loves us and he is mine. Um, this fleshes itself out, I think, practically in a couple of ways. Um, first, um, I think that you should, if I could just be practical for a second, we have to take the D word completely out of our vocabulary. Never say the word divorce. I think this is just completely obvious. When Kelly and I got married, it was so obvious, we never even made a rule about this. We just knew. You know, we just both came to the table knowing, why would you threaten the thing that's most important to you? Why would we say, I'm leaving just to get her to listen to me? Just to, just to win an argument. So please don't use the, the D word as some sort of bomb that you drop in your argument in order to clear the room and make someone listen to you. You have to develop a culture of assurance and security, not a fear and threat. Never use the D word. Slam the door on divorce. Another thing that I think practically we need to hear from this is that this is why cohabitation does not work. And I'm not just saying this because I'm a Christian, and I think that cohabitation doesn't work. <laughs> I'm saying this because secular evidence has proven that cohabitation does not work. And here's the reason why. Cohabitation was invented by a guy, I'm just kidding. Cohabitation was invented <laughs> once in, as a means to test drive the relationship so that you can see if it's worth committing to. The unfortunate thing about that is it's just backwards. You can't test drive commitment. You can't say, I think I like the idea of commitment. Let me try it out for a little bit. That doesn't work. You have to be all in to have commitment. The back door can't be open. You can't test drive oneness if the back door is open. In fact, um, a New York Times um, author, I don't know if this person's a Christian or not, but, but in, in an article entitled, The Downside of Cohabitating Before Marriage, said this, couples who cohabitate before marriage tend to be less satisfied with their marriages and more likely to divorce than couples who do not. These negative outcomes, listen to this, are called the cohabitation effect. There's a whole effect. When you live together with the, with the false pretense that there's commitment, it creates an effect that you will break that commitment if you get married. So you cannot be in a marriage that has a back door open. You have to slam the door on divorce. I am my beloved's and he is mine. And there's no fear there. Kelly and I spent some time in the hospital this week having a baby, and um, I would frequent the little coffee bar downstairs, and in this hospital, on this big, beautiful wall, in raised lettering, they had a Bible verse, and I'm pretty sure they put that Bible verse there for people who are in hospitals, <laughs> for people who might be kind of in desperate situations, maybe at the end of some line, and, and this is what the verse read. It read, I will never leave you nor forsake you, and I thought, I would need to hear that if I was struggling right now, if I was wondering why God was allowing this to happen to me. 
And this verse is famous. It's all throughout the Bible. Deuteronomy, Exodus, Joshua, Hebrews. God says it so many different ways. I will never leave you nor forsake you. As Christians, we don't worry about whether or not God's going to change his mind and kick us out of the castle. As Christians, we don't worry about whether or not we're going to lose our salvation. And if you do, you can stop because you will never lose your salvation. Jesus loves you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. And so here's the key. As much as you can have staying power in your relationship, in your marriage, as much as you can create a culture where, honey, there's a hedge around us, I will never leave you nor forsake you, you are imitating God. You are reflecting the gospel and the mystery of marriage. Now, before we get on to the next point, I feel like I need to say this, maybe not in this room, but who knows? You just never know. There is a time that you slam the door on divorce, but then you have to bust it down. I mean, if there's abuse, for instance, you need to bust that door down. You need to get out of that marriage. You need to get out of that relationship. So I'm not standing here saying, never get a divorce and let him beat you silly. I'm saying, if you're in a situation where he's beating you silly, then you slam the door. I mean, I'll slam it for you if, 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 that's, if that's what we need to do. You slam it open because, slam it open? No, you slam it shut. You kick it open is what I meant to say. I've had several friends who are girls who had to get out of a relationship, out of a marriage because of abuse. Um, so I don't, maybe I don't need to say that, but you just never know. I, I felt like I should say that. Here's, here's the reason why. Yes, there's staying power in the assurance and security that your husband or your wife will never leave you. But if within that marriage you're stuck there because they're beating you silly, then there's no security or assurance. So you need to get out of there. Let's move on to the next point. So, so we've covered two points. Don't react be patient, imitate God with your grace and your loving kindness, stay, slam the door on divorce. Let's, let's conclude with one more point. She goes to the garden and she, she finds him there and listen to what he says to her. You are beautiful as Titsar, my love, lovely as Jerusalem, awesome as an army with banners. I have no idea what that means. Um, Turn away your eyes from me for they overwhelm me. Your hair is like a flock of goats leaping down from the slopes of Gilead, which means she has beautiful, long, straight hair. Your teeth are like a flock of ewes that have come up from the washing. All of them bear twins, and not one of them has lost its young, which means she has all her teeth, and they're straight, and they're clean. Your cheeks are like halves of... And I could go on and on and on, but basically what he's saying is this. He's using... He's saying, I love you. I love you, baby. And he's using the exact same words that he used on his wedding day the chapter before. The same words. The, the Mount Gilead and the, and the washing, you know, the, the goats on your teeth. All of those things. So he could have saved a lot of ink if he just would have said this. Baby, I love you as much today as I did on the day we got married. Because that's what he's saying. I love you just as much today as I did then. So what's the principle? The principle is you need forgiveness. More specifically, the biblical kind of forgiveness. What's the biblical kind of forgiveness? <laughs> it's reconciliation. The Bible uses this word reconciliation. So what does that mean? What is reconciliation? Well, reconciliation comes from a compound word, from the Greek word kata, and then the other word alasso. Kata literally means, it's a preposition, which means down to an exact point. Down to an exact point. And alasso means to change. So you could say that reconciliation means to change back to the exact original. So here's what happens in relationships. Sometimes you have a relationship, you're one, you're buddies, you're friends, you're good, you're cool. But then something happens, a rift, a fight, a conflict, and you get divided. And then you can forgive them, 
right? I forgive you. And you're kind of back to friends again, but you never really forget, and, there's, and it's not the same. You know, ever since that one fight, we've just not been the same. Reconciliation means to change back to the exact original. So it's like you totally forget the, the conflict, you totally forget the hostility that was between you, and you go back to the original. He says to her, honey, it's over. I've forgotten it. We're, I love you as much as I did on the day I married you. We're back to the original of oneness. Some of us in this room need some reconciliation. You need to get back to original oneness. I know there's been conflict. I know there's been a lot of fighting. There's been some bitterness. And maybe that bitterness has driven a wedge between you. And you've forgiven, but maybe not forgotten. And you need powerful biblical reconciliation to come back to original oneness. Incidentally, I need to say this again, at the risk of being repetitively redundant, this is another parallel of how our marriage is a picture of the gospel and how it imitates God. The word reconciliation is used a lot in the Bible. And sometimes it's used between two people who need to be reconciled. Sometimes it's used between two groups of people. Say, for instance, the Jews and the Gentiles who've been reconciled and the wall of hostility has disappeared. But more often than not, it's mostly used to describe God's relationship to us, that we were hostile to him, that we were separated from him. And God doesn't just say, all right, I'll forgive you. Come on into my castle. But I'm watching you. God says, no, I have forgotten. I've washed away your sin, and I've reconciled you back to the original fellowship that we had from the beginning. The reason I created you is to be one with you. We are one together. So in as much in your relationship that you can strive for reconciliation, you will imitate God. Here's what I know. You're going to have some stuff in your marriage. You're going to have some conflict. That conflict's going to create bitterness. And some, some of you in this room may be like, there's bitterness and I don't even know where it's coming from. And it's from a conflict that happened two years ago and you've been harboring it for years. You need to you know, have some reconciliation. Come back to oneness. And every couple I think is going to stand on a threshold between I can either let this thing make me bitter or I can be reconciled back to the original. And you're going to have to make that choice. It's not easy. If it was easy, it would be easy. <laughs> but it ain't. So I've come up with six tips, I think. Six tips for making reconciliation a bit easier. Now, I'm no Gary Chapman. But I have been, done a lot of marriage counseling. I've been in ministry for 20 years, and I've done more marriage counseling than anything else. Even as a youth pastor, I was counseling the youth's parents. And so if I would have known I would have done this much marriage counseling, I would have gotten like a degree in marriage counseling or something. Uh, I've done a lot. Not to say that I know everything, because I am a sinner. But these are six things that I've learned from my own marriage and from other people's marriages you're going to look at some of these tips, and you're going to think they're completely obvious, and I hope you do. But because of the counseling that I've done, I've learned that they're not obvious, because these are things that I've seen destroy marriages. So number six, we'll do like a David Letterman. Number six, choose your words very carefully. And here's what I mean by this. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That is hogwash. I would rather you throw a stick at me than some of the words some people have thrown at me. And you can hurt your spouse like no one else can. Because you know what they look like, you know, with no clothes on. And you know, what, you know what they look like when their hair is messy. And you know what they look like when they don't have makeup on. So you can hurt them more than anyone can hurt them. So choose those words carefully. Because 
You can say something to your spouse that they may forgive you for, but they'll never forget it. You know, keep them, I mean, I am, I am ruined from the things that my wife has. I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> they'll never forget. Hold on one second. I used to tell the kids when I was a youth pastor, it's like toothpaste in a toothpaste tube. Once you squeeze it out, you can't get it back in. You can say, I didn't mean it. I was just, you know, I was just saying, and, and that doesn't matter. They'll never forget it. So you've probably already done it. You, you might even do it again. Don't do it, okay? Choose your words carefully. Number five, never say never or always. This is a huge one. Couples do this all the time. You never do anything around here. You always criticize me. We have to stay away from these generalizations and these absolutes for two reasons. One, they're not true, right? It's not true that he always criticizes you. If it is, then you need to seek counseling. But the other thing is, is it's a sure way to escalate an argument. And here's why. She'll come up to him and say, you never do anything. And he says, well, that's not true. Why, just last Monday, I put my laundry down the chute. So now all of a sudden, we've shifted from the argument we're supposed to talk about to this laundry event on Monday, and he, because he's defensive. Instead of using words like never and always, try to use words that are less escalating. Like maybe a way would be to say, I'm sorry I feel this way, but I just feel like lately I've been doing most of the work and I really could use your help. Then he can't say, well, that's not true. You don't feel that way. <laughs> right? <laughs> you go, okay. You feel that way. You... <laughs> that. You, oh, okay. See what I mean? They're obvious, but yet not obvious. Well, stay away from it never and always. They don't help. They don't help. Number four, don't get historical. I heard a guy say once, every time I fight with my wife, she gets historical. <laughs> Not hysterical, <laughs> historical. This means bringing up the past. The Bible actually says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, that true love keeps no records. So don't get historical. A couple of weeks ago, we talked about how marriage was such a big event that it changes people. It, when two become one, they're going to rub off on each other, and they're both going to be completely different people than they were when they first got married. But it's really hard to change when one member of the spousal relationship won't let you because they keep reminding you of who you were. You know what I mean? So you got to not get historical. It also proves that you're not forgiving. Wait, that was two years ago. I thought we forgot about that. Obviously, you haven't. You know what I'm saying? Don't get historical. It doesn't help. Number three, leave the kids out of it. This is a big one I'm learning. Um, and honestly, it's easy for me to do, I think. It's easy to bring the kids into it. Like sometimes you'll be talking to your spouse through the kids. Well, your mother, she's always late. And you're doing it so she'll hear you, right? And the kids are there. Or maybe you'll use the kids as some sort of leverage or some sort of trick in order to get your way and win an argument. Don't do it. How many of you think this is easy to do? Is it just me? Okay, made me feel better. Someone just at least raise your hand. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Alex is over there with Kai. Yeah, I use Kai all the time. <laughs> Well, for those of you who are being unhonest, um, and you do do it, let me just say this. Here's a, here's a way to, to fix it, I think. Imagine someone else doing it, and you watching them do it. Or imagine someone on TV, like a TV sitcom, where they're using the kids in a fight. If you can imagine what that looks like, I'm pretty sure you would be appalled. You'd be like, what are they? That is so unhealthy, passive-aggressive behavior, and it's damaging to the kids. So leave the kids out of it. Number two, this is a good one. Apologize and confess quickly. I think the most powerful thing in our marriage is my wife's ability to forgive, I mean, to confess and ask for forgiveness quickly. 
even if she's not wrong. You know, she just says she's sorry because she can't stand for there to be tension in the air for more than 10 minutes. So she runs up and she goes, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't know what's going on. We need to talk about this. And, uh, and, and, and we talk about it. Here's what I've learned. When one person confesses and asks for forgiveness, the other person usually always follows. Like, like, it's like he'll say, honey, I'm sorry I was late, and I'm sorry I didn't care about your schedule. I'm a jerk. I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I got crazy. I'm sorry. I just need to get out of the house. And they're both like, no, 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 it was me. No, it was me. No, it was me. Okay, we're good, right? Yeah, okay, cool. It's much easier to forgive someone who's asking for forgiveness. Amen? I've seen so many couples say, well, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness because he doesn't ask for forgiveness. Well, I'm not going to ask for forgiveness because she doesn't ask for forgiveness. I'm not going to forgive because she doesn't. You know, and it just goes on and on and on. Ask for forgiveness quickly. I promise to save your marriage. And then the last one, and this is my favorite one, never win a fight. Never win an argument. By definition, if one person wins, the other person what? loses. Another way of saying it is, fight for the we, not the me, 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 me. Because what I often hear people saying is, well, I'm not going to forgive him because he won't forgive me. Or I'm not going to tell him this because he won't tell me this and me this. And he's not going to do me, 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 me. And what you're seeing is that they're not pressing for reconciliation to become back to original oneness. Instead, they're just fighting for me. The quote that I gave earlier from Tom Nelson was, a good couple presses for a resolution, and a bad couple presses for a victory. I want mine. I honestly believe that the last one is the most important one. If you could just hold your marriage up as the sacred, mystery, gospel-like thing, and you both, what do we need to do here for the we? Well, we need to forgive each other and move on. Well, then let's do it. Yeah, but not until you understand my side of the story. <laughs> you know, that's what typically happens. So those are a couple of things that I think would be helpful. The issue is press for oneness, the original oneness that we had when we were married. Now, I want to discuss this question, and the question is this. What is the most meaningful point you heard today and why? And this question is not so that you can tell me that you liked the sermon. This question is for you to think, if this was the most meaningful thing I heard tonight, then maybe this is the thing I need to be working on. Maybe this is the thing I need help with in my community. Maybe this is the thing that is God is convicting me about. So this is when the table might get a little you know, less people talking. But try not to do that. Try to actually be honest. What is the thing that jumped out at you the most, or what's the most meaningful point that you heard? The last few verses of, of, of chapter 6 um, says this. She says, I went down to the nut orchard to look at the blossoms of the valley to see whether the vines had budded, whether the pomegranates were in bloom before I was aware, my desire set me among the chariots of my kinsmen, a prince. Return, return, O Shulamite, return, return, that we may look upon you. And then he says, why should you look upon the Shulamite as upon a dance before two armies? I have no words to explain what just happened without embarrassing all of us. But I can tell you this, what we're looking at here is makeup. Intimacy, if you, you know, present company, I need to be careful with my words. We're, we're looking at makeup intimacy. In fact, thank you. <laughs> in, in fact, again, the same thing, I needed that. I don't even know how to do that. <laughs> yeah, everyone has different words for it at home, right? Maybe we should start using that one. Honey, uh, you want to go to the nut orchard? <laughs> I'm trying to find some more, but I, I can't at the moment. I'm, I'm too embarrassed. I'm blushing. <laughs> I 
the words that he used, the language that he uses here is the exact same language as their wedding night, their honeymoon, the first time. And so what we see here is this intimacy, this oneness, like the second honeymoon, if you will. And what's fascinating is that she's called the Shulamite, which is an interesting word. She's often called a Shulamite. It's a Hebrew word. It's feminine for Solomon's Hebrew name, which is Shula, Shulamah or something like that, Shulamon. Um, Charles Spurgeon says this. The Hebrew word is a... He doesn't like the translation Shulamite because it doesn't help us, but, so he helps us. The Hebrew word is a feminine of Solomon. Solomon may stand for the bridegroom's name, and then the well-beloved bride takes her husband's name in a feminine form, which would be like saying Shulamith or Sulame, or perhaps even better, and I like this one, Salima. So he's Solomon and she's Salima. They're, they're so one, they have the same name. There goes on their honeymoon, Solomon and Salima. Or to borrow Tommy Nelson's illustration, it'd be like saying, there goes Henry and Henrietta. <laughs> or there goes Dan and Daniela. There goes Jeremy and Jeremycita. I don't know. I don't know. They're, they're one together. There goes Jim and Jehoshaphine. I don't know. I don't. That's just Spanish, not Hebrew. But nevertheless, they're one. They're one together, so one that they take each other's name. Can I give you one more gospel centered Christological point? We are the same that we are so much one with Christ that we take his name and we call ourselves Christians, that he has brought us back to the original relationship and we are riding off into the sunset with our beloved and we are Christian, we are one with Christ. And so tonight we've learned three keys and all of those three keys are ways to imitate God. When Paul says, imitate God and love your wife as Christ loves the church and respect your husband as Christ is respected from the church, we see that it isn't too hard, really, platitudinally, if you will, if we just imitate God. And the three ways that we learn to imitate God uh, was to not to react. Do not react, but show long-suffering, grace, and patience. And as much as you can show long-suffering and grace and patience to your spouse, you will imitate God and you will reflect the mysteries of the gospel of marriage. And then secondly, we learned to stay as much as you can stay and slam the door on divorce and give ultimate assurance and say, I will never leave you nor forsake you. You again are imitating God. And you're saying through, through death do us part, sickness and in health, want and in plenty, I am here. I'm gonna stick to you, baby. You imitate God and reflect the glory and the mystery of the gospel. And then finally, reconciliation. In as much as you can press for change, back to original oneness in your marriage, which is hard to do, but believe you me, it was hard for Jesus to do that for us, that he gave his life upon the cross and spilt his blood and covered the bolt that barred us from him. He made it so that we had not just access to him, but a complete change back to the original relationship. And if you can do that in your marriage, you will imitate God and you will glorify God by being the mystery of the gospel. So we're going to conclude with communion. We take communion every week. And at this point, we're taking communion and we're reflecting on what Christ has done for us, that I am my beloved 
and he is mine. He died for me. I'm assured of this, and I am in, in, in even being proven once again of this each week as I do this in remembrance of him, of what he's done for me.